Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service design practitioner based in Dublin City, Ireland. Today I caught up with Kate Dawson, a doctoral researcher from the NUI School of Psychology in Galway, Ireland. Now I actually stumbled across Kate's work on This Morning, the UK TV show with Eamon Holmes and Ruth Langford. And in that episode, Kate was speaking about how we should maybe consider teaching about masturbation and porn as part of more open discussions around sex education and our bodies with children in school, some of which sparked a huge debate online. Now Kate's focus over the last number of years has been on the use of porn and sex education, particularly amongst young people, and within lies a whole host of societal problems. So the proliferation of access to the internet and indirectly to porn has opened up new challenges for designers to become aware of. So how has this impacted how people communicate within relationships? How has this affected and contributed to body dysmorphia? How has this affected consent? Are all discussed in this episode. We speak more openly about what needs to change in educational school systems, but also how we as adults and parents communicate about these topics related to our bodies and our children's bodies as they grow. We speak openly about these topics and it makes for a fantastic conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Let's get into it. Kate Dawson, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm very good. Thank you. I'm delighted to finally you know, speak with you. We've tried once before and I had to cancel at the last minute, but we're here now, which is the main thing. You're not a designer, but you're a designer in some other ways. So tell me how you describe what you do for our listeners. Okay, well, I guess the main things I do, I suppose I wear two hats. Um, I work in sex education, so I develop and deliver different workshops around sexual health, you know, like general sexual health programs around, you know, puberty, reproduction, contraception and STIs. But then um, kind of more specific ones around pornography, body image and consent. But what I spend most of my time doing is researching porn. And I am just about to finish my PhD in the School of Psychology at NUI Galway. Um, So basically what I'm looking at is, you know, what are young people's experiences of watching porn and how can we better educate them about porn so that they don't have to kind of take it as a given, I guess, the content that they're watching and have these expectations about what sex will be like. Yeah, nice. So I stumbled upon your work actually through this morning in the UK, like the the TV show Mm -hmm. that's on in the morning. And the topic that was discussed at that day, and I know we discussed before, it was possibly a little bit of clickbait, but is should we be teaching children about masturbation and pornography in school? Yeah. So tell me where that originated, that topic. Where that kind of started off was, you know, from my experience of going to trainings and learning about how to deliver sex education programs, a lot of the content that I was being exposed to was that, you know, we talk to young boys a lot about masturbating and that it's a normal thing. But then when it comes to young girls, we don't really talk about it at all. And I think, you know, from my experience of working with teenagers over the last few years, it's become really apparent that a lot of boys are very comfortable talking about masturbation and a lot of boys do masturbate, but then girls are extremely ashamed of their bodies and, you know, feel really embarrassed about their genitals. I recently actually spoke to a young girl, well, she was about 16 years old and she just didn't know if she had like a vaginal opening or not because she'd actually never looked at her own vagina 
Whereas this is something, you know, it's a, it should be just a normal part of your body that everybody is comfortable with. But unfortunately, it's not. And we're meeting a lot of young people who are actually having really uncomfortable and really unpleasurable first time sexual experiences because they haven't explored their bodies themselves and they don't know how to communicate with their partner actually that's, that's hurting me and that's or that's not you know and I think that's especially the case for you know young heterosexual couples for guys mm. you know they don't know what it's like to have a vagina and a vulva for girls they don't know what it's like to have a penis so then the guys sometimes can end up really hurting the girls not meaning to but then the girls don't know how to communicate actually this is hurting me so I think that's kind of why I became interested in it in the first place and you know supporting people in having enjoyable experiences we all know that sex can be bad you know it can be really boring yeah. it can be awkward you know sometimes you probably would have preferred to just sit down and have a cup of tea instead but <laughs> you don't want it you don't want it to be bad all of the time you know but people I think we have this idea that you know when we see sex in movies and we see sex in porn we get this idea that sex should be this great thing and that people you know like anything from like fingering or hand jobs or all of these things they should always feel good and then when they don't, people feel really ashamed and really embarrassed. And I want to be able to facilitate conversations with young people so that they can actually figure out what they like and then have, you know, healthy and enjoyable relationships. Yeah. And like, there's so much to discuss on what you've just said there. <laughs> it's like, there's a bit about consent there that, I, that I'm going to come back to in a little bit. But what do you think is driving, like you said there before, about the girl who didn't really understand about her, her vagina? Mm. What do you think are, are the contributing factors to the lack of liberation? I think it's probably a combination of factors and a societal one where I suppose, well, on one hand, you know, you would hope that parents would talk to their kids about their bodies and, you know, mm. this is the vulva and, the, you know, and this is a penis and use the correct terms and stuff like that. But a lot of the time, you know, parents in Ireland anyway will have grown up in households where there was absolutely no discussion of sex whatsoever. And now we're expecting parents to have these very open conversations with their kids when they don't have the language to discuss it and they don't have the confidence. So I think on, on one hand, you know, parents aren't being supported in having these conversations. They're not given practical information on how to start them. And then sometimes people say the wrong thing in sex education as well. And I suppose it starts off from a really young age, you know, like from, you know, if a child maybe, you know, putting their hands down their trousers in the sitting room or in the kitchen and then kind of having their hand kind of smacked away, be like, oh my God, that's dirty. You know, it's little things that you mightn't actually think make a big difference, mm. but these small things can contribute to an understanding from an early age that, okay, I don't touch that part of my body. I don't talk about it because it's dirty or it's embarrassing or it's shameful. And um, so I think that there are a lot of things that contribute to that. And then, you know, from where I come from, you know, researching porn and stuff, we often get this very kind of standardized look of what a body looks like. So what a penis looks like, you know, men in the porn industry have on average quite large penises, you know, yeah. I think you need to be like over seven and a half inches to actually get a job in the porn industry for a lot of places. So, you know, that's like two and a half inches larger than the average Irish male penis, for example. And we're going to edit that bit out there just to like, we were obviously I go about and say that we're, we were much bigger than that. <laughs> You do what you need to do. Um, <laughs> but for women as well, you know, you get this idea that labia and vulvas are all very symmetrical and small. And then you don't ever see people who have, say, like longer clitorises or uneven labia. And it's a lot of, you know, like white bodies as well. So there's not a lot of variation. And then no one's being told that there is a lot of variety. So I guess it's like there's, there's lots of stuff. And I know people probably listening say, how does this link into design? And why are we talking about this kind of stuff? Well, 
the presentation of, of this kind of topic is really important because how we educate now is going to impact us in the future. Yeah. And the proliferation of porn is changing our minds and it's rewiring certain parts of our modeling for the future. Mm. And I guess I want to discuss a little bit more about how you feel the role of education, like in Ireland in particular, I'll give you an example. Like I was schooled mainly in the eighties, like my mental modeling was created in the eighties in a Catholic school. And it was kind of like, lads, today we're not going to be studying Irish and maths Mr. Murphy and Mrs. Murphy are going to come in and then they wheel in the VHS, the video player and the TV and they put a video in and then they leave the room. Uh. And then we all went home in shock and we sat there and looked at the TV and then went back the next day and we asked questions. That was it, done. So like, how do you think education is going to tackle this and what should they be doing? I think... We need to adopt more of like a, a model that we see like sort of in like in the Netherlands. They start their sex education at a really young age. How young? Um, oh, like in primary school and at a really young age talking about like, you know, your body and bodily autonomy and, you know, being safe. And in fairness, now we do that in Ireland as well. There's the Stay Safe program. So it's talking about, you know, like protecting children from being exploited and using the correct words for different parts of the body and that kind of thing. And, you know, nobody has the right to touch you in these intimate places and But likewise, you know, you don't have the right to touch anybody there as well. So I think from a really young age, we need to start normalizing these conversations and talking about, you know, the basics and puberty and reproduction. I think oftentimes, you know, when I say, okay, we need to start talking about sex at a really young age, even in primary school, people kind of go, oh, Jesus, and, you know, get really shocked by that. But I'm not talking about it in the same context as you would, you know, a 14, 15, 16 year old giving little bits of information regularly, um, you know, small or short conversations happening often is more effective than sitting somebody down when they're just about to go through puberty or have gone through Mm -hmm. puberty and saying, okay, we're going to have, you know, the talk now. Sex education needs to be structured in such a way that people are kind of prepared for each of the conversations that you're going to have. So you would never start off you know, talking about like pornography, for example, because you need a deeper understanding of all of the different aspects to do with sexual health before yeah. you go in, into talking about something, something like porn. But you can start off talking about consent from a very young age, about body image and like what normal bodies do from a really young age. And then you would develop the content sort of to make sure that it's age and stage appropriate as they get older. Um, yeah. But there's lots of, you know, we do use lots of different activities to sort of gauge, you know, where young people are are at say we we use like a language of sex exercise at the beginning of our sexual Mm. health workshops and then because it can vary so much because the level of knowledge can vary so much from classroom to classroom doing these exercises and getting people to write down like all of the words that they can think of for you know for penis or for for vagina Mm. or for breast it gives you an understanding of you know what is the language that they're using um but it also lets them have a bit of a laugh because you know they've never been allowed to write like willy or dick down on a piece of paper before and they think it's hilarious so i think about like incorporating humor is is the best way to kind of talk about these topics you know at least if if you can laugh about it you know you can feel a bit uncomfortable but you can still laugh and i think that's really helpful yeah it breaks the taboo a little bit yeah absolutely kate what happens if if we don't change how we speak about this in schools and at home what are the impacts it's difficult to say i guess um because there are a lot of conflicting findings in the research, you know, about what, you know, if people are learning about sex from porn, you know, what exactly that means for them. But I think there'll continue to be a lot of disappointment when it comes to first time sexual experiences, that people will expect something kind of bigger and brighter, and then 
they'll feel bad about themselves and they'll feel really uncertain about what they've done or what to do. I think people will also have, you know, uncomfortable and painful sexual experiences as well, like, you know, like the fingering thing where girls are being really hurt and they can't communicate that. And people might be more likely to do things because they feel that they should. But this isn't specific to, you know, if people don't learn about porn, but this is about, Mm. you know, if people don't have access to good quality sex education. But good quality sex education about bad sex, I think, is really important. We've all had, you know, bad sex education. You're sharing your story there. And we Mm. got a boob talk. You know, someone came in and told us that all of our breasts were different. And then that was it. We were all just sitting in this big video room kind of going, (laughs) right, thank you. Um, Okay. And you're looking at the side of your eye at someone else's boobs. And you're kind of going, they're a little bit different to mine, I suppose. (laughs) I wish I had her boobs. Um, But... And then we also had someone come in and telling us about the HIV virus and that it could break through condoms because it was so powerful. So, you're, you know, we're growing up having so many bad experiences of sex ed and people often talk about having bad sex education. Um, but no one's actually taught us about the realities that sex can be bad and that sex can be boring and embarrassing and that that's all normal. And we know that people have disappointing first time experiences because they're putting themselves under a lot of pressure to perform and then they expect something that doesn't happen. So um, we know that people are really feel really unprepared when it comes to first time sex, that they feel under pressure. You know, I think there's always been, you know, peer pressure there to have sex. And, to, you know, people have always asked, you know, even when I was younger, you know, oh, how far have you gone and what have you done? That pressure has always been there and that curiosity. But now it's almost like it's constantly being reinforced because our society has become so much more sexualized, not just even in the context of porn, but, you know, like billboards that we see, you know, people have a lot more exposure to sexualized content. And when you're looking at porn and stuff, you're getting this idea that, okay, maybe this is what good sex should be like. And I know I've spoken to a lot of people who said, oh no, I've actively looked at porn to try to learn about how to give somebody a blowjob because you know if they're doing it professionally that's obviously their job they're probably really good at it but then they're not given the skills to actually critically engage with that and taught to think about you know how their behavior might affect somebody else you know I think what what was really interesting that came out of our research was that people have very different opinions on the same topics so say for example Going back to the squirting thing, God, you'd say I, I rely on, this, on squirting the, all the time. But um, that, you know, some people would say that, oh, porn is it's really bad because people are seeing squirting and then this is a really unrealistic behavior um, and that a lot, most people actually will never squirt. But then for this tiny percentage of women who do squirt when they're having sex, a lot of those people would say, oh, thank God, you know, I've seen it in porn, so I know that it's a normal thing. But it's the same around people using porn to learn about how to, like, talk dirty. They go, okay, I get this language, and now I can know how to, like, talk with my partner. But then it's important for them to understand that some people would find that language really derogatory or, you know, speaking to a lot of LGBT people about, um, you know, how they're represented in porn. A lot of heterosexual people would say, oh, it's, you know, porn has become really inclusive. Now there's all of these different categories and there's lots of, you know, gay and lesbian and bi porn. But then a lot of young LGBT people would say, well, actually, it only gives you a very limited insight into what it's like to be a young LGBT person. So I think exploring these different, you know, perspectives is really, really important to what we're going to do to make change. Yeah. Now, before um, I spoke to Dr. John Curran, um, who was also on the podcast as well, mm. about the normalization of porn. Mm. And, you know, Dr. John, you know, I call him John, actually. Um, he made a really good point about gambling is addictive. You know, you need to be over 18 to gamble. You know, porn 
is addictive as well. And I'm not too sure what the legal age, it might be 16, um, technically to watch as it to access porn, but we know that it's accessible for anyone who's got access to an internet connection. Mm-hmm. So with the sort of the normalization of porn, do you feel that in the future that there might be a chance that like, say, if it's so normalized, we could see, say, you porn or red tube or any of these porn sites sponsoring say a football team and um, we're just going back to the thing about being addictive and then the um i'll just get mm. on to the football team thing so a lot of the research actually shows that the way that people's brains respond to say alcohol or drugs if they're addicted to alcohol and drugs mm. the pathways that light up in the brain that does not necessarily happen for people who watch porn but absolutely people can feel like they're addicted to porn and they can say that they're addicted to porn. But we actually don't know enough about whether or not porn can be classified as an actual addiction yet. But certainly we can't disregard the fact that some people do feel like they're addicted. You know, that's important that they have support as well. For the... Yeah, football clubs and normalizing everything. I was thinking about this earlier on. and I know it's an unusual question and it's an unusual <laughs> way of fra- framing it. No, but it's interesting. It, but do you know what? There was a team from Kent University, I think back in like 2014, called the, I think they're called the Rutherford Raiders. Um, they actually put the Pornhub logo on their football jersey as, as a joke. But then Pornhub <laughs> saw this and then they offered to fund their club. Um, but then the university said, no, you can't compete. Like, in the university games and stuff if if you have this on your jersey and thing and I was thinking okay maybe it's because you know this isn't going to be allowed because they're over 18 you know porn is for people who are over Mm. 18 but at the same time so is alcohol and most matches and stuff are are supported by like Heineken or Guinness there would be a little logo at the bottom of the screen a lot of the time but I think it's different I think why it's different for porn as opposed to alcohol advertising is that porn is such a private behavior you know like People watch porn in private, whereas alcohol is a lot more accepted in that it's such, you know, it's part of you kind of socializing and that kind of thing. I don't know if we'll ever get to the stage where porn is accepted by everyone in the same way that alcohol is. Um, yeah. <laughs> because there's so many different opinions about it, you know, like some people really hate it and some people really love it. But then the people who really love it aren't really the people <laughs> who are speaking out about it. I'm just picturing like Dr. John, like as an 80 year old, you know, like, and you know, the family come over. Oh, don't mind me. I'm, I'm just, just just pausing it. I'm just watching some porn. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, what are you watching? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. John. It's, it, but it is your question. It is your question <laughs> about the normalization of porn. Um, look, there's so much to talk about in this topic. And I've done quite a bit of research into the area. But where do you feel the restrictions are? Where do you think the, the hang ups and the holdbacks are in making this type of thinking more acceptable? Um, I think, I suppose, the main source of information that people get about porn is from the media. You know, it's from mm. newspapers or articles online and that kind of thing. And a lot of the time, those articles will draw on really sensationalist research findings. They'll often kind of misconstrue some of the research as well. That's happened to me with some of my studies. And then, you know, if you're constantly getting this idea, your only source of information about porn is that porn is bad and that we should, you know, parents need to do everything to block access to Mm. porn. And porn is addictive and it will make people become sexually violent and it will make people feel bad about their bodies and give them skewed ideas about what it is to be a human being. You know, then it's never going to be something that we Mm. try to talk about it in a way that it can and become normalized because we we're not allowing ourselves to want that to happen do you know what i mean yeah just touching on that subject and building on it probably a little bit more around porn what do you feel is the relationship between porn and societal beliefs surrounding the treatment of women 
is there a contributing factor there towards like the proliferation and the normalization of access to porn and the shift in liberation and how we speak and, and treat women? I suppose the thing is, is there's so many mixed findings on this topic. Mm. You know, some saying that it contributes to like reinforcing these traditional views about men and women that men need to be yeah. dominant and women need to be submissive and passive. Yeah. But then others have found that porn users generally have more egalitarian views to viewers yeah. um, towards women and then non-viewers. And then obviously there are parts of the industry that treat people really badly, but then there are other parts that you know performers have really good and um, positive experience there's no doubt you know that porn portrays people in a certain way and um, like mm. only only as sexual beings you know with no personalities or no other interests but that's what it's designed to do you know people watch it to masturbate we don't hold any other media source to these standards you know of having to portray the best examples of human behavior what it is to be a you know a wonderful person because people don't learn how to live their lives based off tv shows or movies like you don't watch the Fast and the Furious, you know, to learn how to drive because you see people driving all the time. So you have a point of reference for what it's actually like to drive. So you watch Fast and the Furious and then you go, oh yeah, they're doing all this exciting stuff. But I know the reality is that you'll be stuck in traffic and then whatever, you stall your car every now and again. But it's a problem, I guess, you know, with regards to porn in that it's a problem when one media source becomes a person's only source of information. And unfortunately, mm. that is what's happening with porn. That people, it's their only point of reference for sex. And then that's not good enough. So yeah. it depends on a person's motivating factors for watching porn again. Are they actually watching porn to learn about how to behave and how to treat women? Or are they just watching it as a, you know, almost as a passive behavior, as an aid to masturbation, but nothing more? So it really depends yeah. on how involved you are and what you're actually seeking to get from watching it. Yeah. So just to build on that uh, again, so if we, we can't really tackle the, the treatment of women question, but how does porn contributed to consent? I suppose the main issue is that, you know, we don't see any communication of consent in yeah. porn because it's scripted, you know, um, the actors, you know, they consent to doing each scene beforehand and then they actually have to sign off on it afterwards. And even if there was talking or a lot of communication about, okay, you turn around now and do this, you know, we don't get to see that because it's edited out. Like people are always really surprised when we tell them that it takes about eight hours to film like a 15 to 20 minute scene. You're only kind of seeing like the highlights, I guess. But now, you know, if you're watching porn to learn about sex, what sex should be like, then that might be a big issue because if you're not, I suppose it's more about if you're not learning about consent from in other ways. So if you're not learning about consent, you know, as part of your sex education programs and you're only learning about consent and sexual communication from porn because there is no communication. But it's, I guess it's more about how we can support people on a societal level and how our institutions mm -hmm. can actually support teachers and parents and stuff and having conversations about consent but it's I guess it's not just the fault of porn and I think that sometimes this happens in the discussion around porn is that okay well porn isn't doing all of these things but then you know we're not talking like, it isn't talking about consent we don't get to see consent we don't get to see a variety in bodies but then that really is the job for sex education so that yeah. they can give people the skills to recognize that okay yeah we don't see that in porn but that's not how I should behave. Yeah. So I guess we're coming towards the end of the, the conversation, but if we were to say the things that we need to get better at is speaking more openly about, uh, and the, the naming of body parts with children who are yeah. what younger, how young would you recommend? Oh, 
like I would honestly like when when I have kids I'm you know which I plan on having kids maybe over the next couple of years I will you know from this the moment that I start talking to them I would say yeah. you know that these are the different parts of the body and you know I don't have to necessarily say what they do but you can say you know these are your fingers and these are your toes and that's your vulva yeah. and that's your penis you know and that's what it should be it's just just a part of the body um, but we associate yeah. so much more with that that I think people get a bit freaked out um, it's a stigma it's the stigma, yeah. And, you know, even I've met so many young women who, who are confused when I say vulva. They're like, what is that? You know, it's ridiculous that people don't know what a vulva is. I don't know how we've gotten to this stage. It's really yeah. sad, you know. If we can involve all of the stakeholders, so like involving kids in the development of programs, involving parents and involving teachers, yeah. you know, it's not good enough for like an outsider, maybe like me, to say, okay, we need to talk about porn if people aren't actually supported in having these conversations. So we need to talk to all of these people to figure out what will work for them. Yeah, a huge amount of education of um, a child happens at home. And looking at Ireland as a good example, like where, where I'm based, I'm based in Dublin, you're based in Galway. Mm-hmm. We obviously have a lot of lingering cultural issues lingering from, you know, the Catholic Church. Yeah. And I myself, I probably don't have the tooling to do this. So what, what resources would you recommend for parents to look at? We have developed a website, so we're, we're still, you know, expanding the content and we have a website called Wiser, so www.bewiser.ie and it's a sexual health website, but there's a section for parents that will mm. talk to you about like the stage that your kids are at, what level of detail that they need at different ages. And then obviously it's up to the discretion of the parent as well. Obviously they don't need to do exactly what we say. Um, yeah. We're just there as a guide, I guess. But we have a section as well on, you know, young people and teenagers frequently ask questions about sex. And then we give examples of how they can answer those questions in an age appropriate way. So we're constantly, you know, building upon that. And if anybody wanted to, um, you know, send us an email, you can send me an email or reach out if they want any, yeah, if they want, you know, some ideas about how to approach talking about these different topics, um, you absolutely feel free to do that. There's a good, I suppose, when it comes to porn, there's a good resource called the Porn Conversation. That's for parents as well on, um, you know, basically what do you say if your kid asks what porn is and then what do you tell them about it? And that's for different age groups as well. So like nine to 11 year olds, yeah. you know, from up to 15 year olds, that kind of thing. Um, Be Wiser, Scarletine is an amazing sexual health resource for young people and for parents. It's like the Bible of sex education. There's just okay. so much information there if people want to access that as well. And I'll put those links in the show notes for the podcast as well. Kate, look, it's been fascinating to speak with you. I think it's a really interesting case study for design because there's a problem there, like there's a design problem. And, you know, you don't classify yourself as a designer, but you, you've tackled this very much like from a human-centered design perspective. So um, I know a lot of the listeners will, will enjoy listening to you. So thanks so much for your time. Not at all. It was lovely speaking to you. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to Bringing Design Closer. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is Hate CD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>